What do you love? I want you to think for a moment. What do you really, really love? Is there anything in your life that you love so much that you would be willing to say sacrifice for that or, or give up your life for that? Now, most of us hopefully probably think of a person when I ask that question. You know, I, I know that there are people in my life that, that hold a place right here in my heart, a pretty big place. In fact, five different times when our children was born, each one of those kids, even though they were all slimy and nasty to look at, they all wedged their way into my heart and they've been there ever since. And then when Hudson came along, he somehow found some room too. And so he's in there as well. But, but what, do you, what do you love? Is there anything other than people that you really, really love? Something that you couldn't live without? I think we need to call that question to our attention today. And, and in doing that, I want to share with you a biblical story. I want to share with you a backstory, and then we'll get to the part that I really want to dwell on in Exodus chapter 22. First and foremost, I, I want to introduce you to a man by the name of Abraham. How many of you, how many of you have heard the name Abraham before? How many of you was, you heard of the Bible character Abraham? Because some people are Abraham today, right? Abraham Lincoln, Abraham, anyway. Um, there's this guy in the Old Testament named Abraham. We find his story in the book of Genesis. And Abraham was living a happy life, living alongside of his father's family in Ur of the Chaldeans. That's what the Bible tells us. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to us today. And so let me just say that we think that that was in somewhere in Mesopotamia. So you can all go home and look up Mesopotamia on your world atlas and find out where that is. He was living there, and, and he heard the voice of God. God called out to him. Even though his family, we don't think, were necessarily followers of Yahweh, he heard the voice of God. And the voice of God said to Abraham, I want you to pick up your flocks and herds. I want you to take your tents and pack them up. And I want you to go to a place that I will show you. No directions given. Just follow me. I will show you where I'm going to take you. And so Abraham picks up all of his stuff, and he, he takes his family, his servants, and all of his flocks and his herds, and he takes them to this land that God shows him. And eventually he ends up in the land that the Bible calls Canaan. We call it today Israel. It's that short strip of land that's been fought over for, for generations, but that's where he ends up. And as Abraham ends up there, God comes to him once again and says, I want to make a promise to you. First of all, all of this land will be yours someday. This is where I want you to settle. This is going to someday be where my people live. And by the way, my people are going to be your descendants. And through your seed or through your son, I'm going to allow all the nations of the earth to be blessed. You're going to have a child. His name is going to be Isaac. And you're going to, you're going to basically, his descendants or your descendants are going to become as numerous as the sands on the seashore. Abraham, you're going to have a big family. And all the world is going to be blessed through that. And, and, and so Abraham had this image in his mind that, that there is going to be an heir because Abraham was getting older. Most of us agree probably today that there's a certain age that once you pass that age, you probably should not have any more kids. It gets kind of dangerous. Plus, I've learned because we had two more that when you're older, it, you're more tired right? It's harder to keep up with a toddler when you're 35 as opposed to 25. I can just attest to that. And, and if you get to a certain age, most of us would say, nope, not going to happen. Well, Abraham and his wife were already to that age. And this promise was being made. And Abraham's thinking, how's this going to happen? And again, long story very short, after trying a few ways of their own and that didn't work out, finally God blessed them with a child. And the Bible tells us they were well beyond the age of having children, so much so that they would have been on Ripley's Believe It or Not if that had happened today. I mean, it was pretty amazing. And suddenly Abraham, 
who had wanted a child all of his life for the simple reason that every parent that, that wants a child wants a child, just so that they can have someone to love and someone to carry on the family traditions and carry on the family name. But in addition to that, Abraham was elated because this was the child that God's promise was going to come through. You see, all the time that he didn't have any children, Abraham was probably worried that, that God somehow made a mistake, that maybe I really hear what I heard, and maybe God has chosen someone else, or maybe I did something and God's no longer with me, maybe he's given up on me, and so Abraham waited, and finally the child came, and through Isaac, all of the promises that God made to him would finally come to fruition. Isaac was a living embodiment of the promise that Abraham received from God, and Abraham loves him with all of his heart, as any parent should. But then something very strange happened. We find the story in Genesis chapter 22. God once again called out to Abraham, and Abraham answered with what I think is a good answer when God calls you, here I am. A few months ago, we talked about how that's kind of a dangerous answer sometime, especially if you say, here I am, send me, because God will, you know? But Abraham answers and, and says, here I am. Then God basically told Abraham to do something utterly ridiculous, and we find it in verse 2 of chapter 22. This is what God said to him. He said, I want you to take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac. <laughs> I love how God is so specific sometimes, right? How many of you wish God would be more specific from time to time with you? Just, just spell it out, put a billboard up, something, anything. But he's very clear, take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will show you. The Bible tells us as we continue to read that, that Abraham got up early the next morning and he immediately began making preparations to leave with his son, taking all of the things he would need for the sacrifice and, and bringing along a couple of servants to help. I'm disgusted by that, personally. I, I would love to have seen a little more struggle in the decision. If I were Abraham, I think I probably would have said a few things to God in the overnight period between when he told me to do this and when I left to go do it. I think I would have said, God, are you sure? This is the child of the promise. If this child dies, God, there is no more. There, there's nobody else. How are you going to fulfill your promise to me? I think I would have wanted to say maybe, God, I'll tell you what, give me seven days and seven nights because that's a holy number and I'll pray about it and then I'll make my decision. How many of you would probably have said that? I, I, I want to fast for 40 days, God, and then we'll talk about it again. How about that? But the text doesn't allow for any of that. I would have loved to have seen Abraham struggle, and yet Abraham's decision seems absolute and immediate. Now again, we think that probably Abraham reasoned in his mind that even if he killed the child, that God somehow would make it work, that he would either bring him back to life, or, or maybe there was something happening here he didn't understand. But it seems to us that Abraham's obedience was immediate. I just don't like that. I think he should have struggled more but that's not up to me. So they gather what they need and they head out. And, and as I said, they're accompanied by a couple of servants to help carry the load. And after three days of travel, Abraham sees the place off in the distance. God says to him, this is the place. You're going to go there and I want you to make the sacrifice there. And as he sees the place, he basically says to the servants, okay, you guys stay here 
The, the boy and I will go up on the mountain. We're going to do the sacrifice. We're going to worship there. And then we will return. He says we. Now in that moment, he's either expressing extreme faith that God is somehow going to work this out. Or he's lying to the servants so that they won't stop him from what he's about to do. As he and the boy make the final leg of the journey up to the top of the hill, we find that the boy becomes a little suspicious, or at the very least questions. And in verse 7, he has a conversation with his father, and part of that conversation is this. He says, Dad, we have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? And famously, Abraham said, God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Again, it was, was it Abraham's faith that was speaking? Or was he simply trying to pacify the boy so that he could accomplish this horrible task that God had set out for him? As they reach the designated place, they build the altar and arrange the wood. And I would imagine as Abraham comes close to doing what he's about to do, his emotions must running wild but he seems fixated on the goal and and as the boy goes about his business he doesn't seem to doubt his father's word but eventually when the altar is built and the wood is set on it he takes his son and he binds him and he puts him on the wood and i got to tell you right now if that had been me i don't know if i could have done it abraham takes the knife in his hand and after the final action of resignation that he is going to do what God asked him to do finally finally God intervenes and an angel speaks from heaven at that moment 22 11 through 14 says this at that moment the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said Abraham Abraham yes Abraham replied here I am maybe we should all just reply that all the time when God calls don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram, sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named the place Yahweh Yirah, which means the Lord will provide... Some of you have heard it pronounced Jehovah Jireh. That comes from a German translation. That's a long story. But it means the same. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Would you just do me a favor right now and say out loud, it will be provided. Say that. I almost believe you, but not quite. So why do I tell you that story? Because I believe I know what Abraham loved more than anything. I believe that he loved his son. But he didn't just love his son. He loved all of the things that having a son brought into his life. He loved the fact that he would have an heir for his inheritance. He loved the fact that this would be the boy that would give him legitimacy because in, in Abraham's time, if you didn't have a child, you really didn't have wealth. You could have all the flocks and herds and, and cattle and all of the stuff that you want, but until you have an heir to carry that on, all it means is that everything you own when you die is going to get taken by someone else. So Abraham not only loved his child, there's no doubt that he did, but he also loved everything that the child brought to him and and that child i believe 
held a very dear place in Abraham's heart. And here's what I believe. I believe that that place that the child was residing in was created for something else. And I believe man was created in, in the Garden of Eden in a world that contained lots of things. When God placed Adam in the garden, he said, look around you, there's fruit trees, there's all of these different things. All of these things are for your pleasure and they're for you to enjoy. But all of those things, quote unquote, were exterior, they were outside. The only thing that was on the inside of Adam when he was first created was the Holy Spirit of God because God's image was stamped on him. That's why the Bible says that he was created in the image of God. And so I believe that Adam was created with a place deep down in his soul, in his heart, whatever you want to call it, that only God should be in. I'm going to call it the throne of his heart. And when Adam and Eve in the garden chose rebellion instead of obedience, something replaced God in that place. God was forced out and the apple, so to speak, took that place. In other words, things, a created thing suddenly was there instead of the creator. And as Adam and Eve continued to live their lives and as they had offspring, all of these things began to change and, and humankind basically forced God out of the place of, of leadership and of kingship in their hearts. And basically since that time, there have been a whole bunch of other things that have been competing for the throne of our heart, the things that drive us, the things that we want the things that we own, the people that we're responsible to, all of these things have taken over that throne where God is supposed to set. And because of sin in our lives, the, the, the relationship was broken. But I'm here to tell you that there's a way to fix that today. And it's because Jesus died on the cross of Calvary that we can once again allow God to sit on the throne of our hearts and to fill that space that we keep trying to fill with everything else but that cannot be filled with anything but God, if we're going to have peace, there should no longer, things should no longer sit on that throne. Because of what Jesus did, we can put God back where he's supposed to be in our souls. And for us to be at peace in this world that God created for us, we must restore order to our souls. God has to be here. Things have to be there. There's no room for things here if God's going to be there as well. God dwells within us. And the things of this world which are gifts from him should remain in their proper place. No thing should ever sit on the throne of our lives. Now, some of you are saying, now Isaac wasn't a thing. Why would Abraham have to give up Isaac to prove his loyalty to God? Why would he have to give up Isaac as a part of getting that out of his soul and letting God be there? Isaac wasn't a thing. And, and certainly the Bible, and, and I would never call a person a thing uh, people are important, people are created by God, and they have value because of that. But Isaac, in some ways, was the desire of Abraham's heart, not just for who he was, but because of what he brought to the relationship, as I've already said. Isaac meant um, that his, his legacy would continue and that his fame would go forward and that the nation would one day know that he started it all. And so Isaac represented a stumbling block but in order to prove to Abraham that, that God was first place in his life, God asked for Isaac, and Abraham was obedient. And as a result, Abraham kept everything that he had, but he had a new perspective on what was most important. To accomplish this goal of, of getting Christ back where he needs to be in our hearts, we need to do what Jesus said in Matthew 5.3, or become what Jesus describes in Matthew 5, 3, Jesus said, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The older translations say, 
um, God blesses the pure or the poor in spirit. In other words, people who have poverty living inside of them. Now, I want to read you a quote, and I know it's a long one. I hope that you'll help each other stay alert through this. And here's your, I'll give you a little project while I'm reading it. It's from A.W. Tozer, whom this series is inspired by, and he uses some big words. So every time you hear a big word you don't know the meaning of, just punch it into your little phone or your tablet there and look it up later, and that way you'll have something to keep your mind on what we're doing. But listen carefully to this. It's really good stuff. The weighter, deeper knowledge of God is through the lonely values of soul poverty and the abnegation of all things. The blessed ones who possess the kingdom are they who have repudiated every external thing and have rooted from their hearts all sense of possessing. These are the poor in spirit. They have reached an inward state paralleling the outward circumstances of the common beggar on the streets of Jerusalem. Now, now think about that picture for a minute. We're, we're supposed to produce in our hearts the same poverty that the beggars sitting in Jerusalem that we read about in the stories of Jesus were basically experiencing, one where we depend completely on something else to feed us and sustain us. This, that is what the word poor, as Christ used it, actually means. These blessed poor are no longer slaves to the tyranny of things. They have broken the yoke of the oppressor, and this they have done, not by fighting, but by surrendering. Now listen to the statement. Though free from all sense of possessing, they yet possess all things, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, friends, by freeing ourselves from possessions, from their slavery, we find ourselves possessing everything because we gain the kingdom of heaven. Listen, if you want peace and contentment, if you want quietness of soul, then you need to push out of your heart all the things that God provided for you and allow him to reign supreme on the throne of your life. In other words, don't love things, love people. I thought there'd be an amen there. I know it was dramatic and some of you are getting sleepy, but we should never love things. I think we use the word love too carelessly in this day and age. You know, we, we love everything. We love the latest song. We love a good football game. We love Taco Bell. And that one we shouldn't say because Taco Bell does not love us back. Amen? I'm being ridiculous, but let's be honest. We use the word very carelessly in our time. I'm almost thinking that in my own life, for instance, I want to start saying I like those things, not necessarily love them, because I believe that things really shouldn't be loved because they're, that puts them at the seat of our heart. And we should like things, but we should love people. And let me just remind you that people are not things. We should not use people. You can use things, but you do not use people. Now, sometimes we come into situations where we can love the relationship we have with someone more than we actually love the person. In other words, we love what they give us. We love what they do for us. We love the pleasure of being around them. We love all that they bring to the relationship, but maybe we don't actually love them. And in that case, that relationship becomes one of the things that we need to root from our heart. Love people not things. To love a person is to value them, to want the best for them, and to see the image of God in them and encourage them to live up to that image. Rule over the things that you own, that you have. Don't let them rule over you. 
Don't think of the things that you have as yours. Think of them as God's. He's provided everything that we need, and yet sometimes we take the provision and we put it on the throne, and we should never do that. Friends, God provides what we need for the day, just like he did with the Israelites. How many of you have ever heard of the word manna? You remember the story about the manna in the Old Testament? Again, long story short, the Israelites were always hungry, and God was always providing something for them to eat. Well, miraculously out of the sky, he decides to provide manna. And here were the instructions. You're going to go out in the morning, you're going to pick up as much as you need for the day, and that's it. No more. No stockpiling, essentially, is what he's saying. Go out, get what you need for the day, bring it in, eat it for the day. Tomorrow morning, there will be more. Man, I wish grocery store, I wish my refrigerator was like that, right? I'll just eat everything in it today, and tomorrow it'll be fully stocked again, and I'll just eat that, right? All of it. I, I probably do that too much. But anyway, so the Israelites thought, well, if a little manna is good, a lot of manna is great, right? So they go out, and they start stockpiling it. And the Bible says that many of them went out, and they picked up too much, and they put it in their tents, and in the morning they got up, and the stuff was stinking. I mean, worse than the stuff at the back of your fridge. It was bad. The stuff just rotted because God was trying to tell them, listen, you don't need to stockpile things. I'm going to provide for you. And I'm sure the people thought, well, why shouldn't we get, gather more manna than we need? After all, if we're willing to work harder for it, we should be able to reap the benefit of it, right? But God says, no, it's not about that. It's about the fact that you're depending on me and my provision is for the day. And so the manna story is there. Listen, um, there's a parable of Jesus that kind of sums this all up. And I'll, I'll read it for you very quickly, and then we'll, we'll close. In Luke 12, 16 through 20, he says this, A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, What should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my weed and other goods, and I'll sit back and say to myself, My friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be married. All the financial planners in the room are going, this guy is smart, right? He thought ahead. He set things aside. Where's Pat? Pat's looking down. He doesn't even want to make eye contact with me right now. Anyway, the story goes on. But God said to him, you fool. You will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? And listen to this verse. This is great. Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Listen, don't be a fool. God, it, it is God's plan for us to have things. And let me be clear, there's nothing wrong with having things. It is God's plan to have things, but we need to let go of our love for things. What we love, we worship. And only God deserves our worship. Does that make sense? And so what I want to ask you to do this week, in just a minute, I'm going to lead you in, in a prayer just like we did last week, one that I hope you'll read over and over again this week. But before we get to that, I want you to stop right now, bow your heads, close your eyes if you want to, do whatever you need to do so you can think for a second. If you need to avoid distractions, just close your eyes. But I want you to think of, what do I love? What, what is deep in my heart? What, what would I do anything for? What can I not get enough of? And if it's a thing, I want you to just quietly to yourself renounce that thing. Like, for instance, I know computers, <laughs> tinkering with computers once was at the throne of my life, and, and I had to say to God, God, I, I want to renounce that. I'm going to push that away. I'm not going to have a computer in my home for a while. 
because that's taken too high of a place in my life, and I don't want to serve that. I want to serve you. For some of you, it might be food. It might be alcohol. It might be some other addiction. Maybe for some of you, it's work. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's that car you've always wanted. Maybe, maybe it's a relationship where you, you love the idea of the relationship, but maybe you're going to discover you don't necessarily love the person but you love that relationship and so you're allowing it to, to rule your life. I don't know what it might be for you, but just take a moment and if there is something sitting on the throne of your life other than God, just maybe quietly to yourself, give that to God and say, Lord, I renounce that. I don't want it at the core of my being. I want you to be on the throne of my life and rule my life from now on. I will enjoy the things you've provided, but I'm not going to let them rule me. As you can consider that, I want to just remind you that one of the ways you can tell if something is possessing you instead of you possessing it is whether you're willing to give it away or loan it out. If your possessions are so important to you that you would never, ever let somebody else borrow it, then that might just be an indication that that's a thing, quote-unquote, that's sitting at a place of higher honor than it needs to be. I want to invite you to say this prayer along with me quietly to yourselves. I'm going to read it out loud. It's on the screen. It's already on the Facebook page. If you want to write it down for the week or if you want to snap a picture of it on the screen, feel free to do that. Let me read it aloud as you read it quietly, and I hope you will make it personal. Father, I want to know you, but my cowardly heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding. And I do not try to hide from you the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which, I, and which have become a very part of my living self, so that you may enter and dwell there without a rival. Then, then shall you make the place of your feet glorious. Then shall my heart have no need of the sun to shine in it, for you will be the light of it, and there shall be no night there. In Jesus' name. God, I want to lift before you every single person who is in this room today, and again, I know that these messages are very abstract for some. Lord, this is not a series about, a series about how to be successful and, and win at life although it really is. These are not 10 steps to be more successful as, as the world sees it, but Lord, I believe it is steps that we can use to become more successful at becoming the, the quiet, calm, peaceful people who, who are so confident in you that, that nothing triggers us, that nothing overcomes it, that nothing overwhelms us because we're resting in you and our faith and our hope and our trust is in you and you only. I pray, Father, that you would help these concepts that we're sharing to live in our hearts and to grow out of there so that we can be changed into the image of your son, Jesus, as he comes to dwell on the throne of our hearts today. Father, if there are those here today that, that have prayed to renounce something that's sitting on the throne of their lives, I pray that you would empower them right now to say no to that now and no to that forever and to walk away from it completely so that, God, you can reign in their lives as supreme ruler. Only you deserve that place. 
because you're the one who created us with that place. I ask all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.